millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 41 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, November the 8th. First, I talk to Michael O'Hanissian, the CEO of Premium, a leading provider of scalable managed accounts technology, portfolio administration and financial planning tools for the wealth management industry. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel about whether Australia is headed for another debt fueled property boom. But now let's talk to Michael O'Hanissian. Michael, tell us about Premium. You are you provide the planning tools for the financial services industry, technology. Uh, tell us about it. We're probably better known for our portfolio reporting system. And we're kind of unique in the sense that for the people that are on our platform using our software, we can get the valuations, the CGT, all the tax components 100% right, which is actually really hard in Australia. The complexity of some of the assets that we have, like a hybrid security or a stapled security, like Westfield, which is a good example, where you buy a company but you end up buying a property trust at the same time and you can't separate them. If it's complicated here in Australia, Prime is the only one that gets it right all the time. And one really good example of that, Leon, is the old, what used to be called E-Trade, the stockbroking system, it's now called ANZ Share Trading. For the last 12 years now, if you use that system, if you're a client using that stockbroking system, you get a free tax report every year, and that's premium. So for hundreds of thousands of investors, and it doesn't matter what you buy on the ASX, you can buy Westfield, like a staple security, you can buy options and derivatives, you can buy anything you can possibly imagine. The ATO can change its mind by issuing class rulings after a corporate action. It doesn't matter what it is, that tax report is 100% right, and nobody else can claim that. That's what's unique about us. This is predicated on your technology, is that right? Yeah, and the technology does two things. The first thing is that in the early days of our company, which which started in 2001, the team put together a complete corporate actions database of all the corporate actions that have ever happened since 1985. Why? Because that's when Keating introduced CGT. So we've got this database. It's a huge resource that we have, which we don't believe anybody else has. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is the unique invention of our company. This is our core intellectual property. Every investor portfolio, and we're talking about 300,000 of them, 
gets blown up and reconstructed every night. I'll repeat that. We take every investor portfolio and blow it up every night. So, so let me give an example. Let's say you have your own stock portfolio and you type it into a spreadsheet. You've typed in when you bought the stock, how many you bought and what you paid. And it's kind of a static record. In premium, it's not a static record. It changes every day because the world changes. Prices change, companies merge, they issue rights issues, they, they do share splits, they do all sorts of things. And this is day to day? Every day. So every day when you wake up in the morning and you look at your share portfolio on the premium system, whatever happened overnight, whatever happened even further back, your portfolio is correct. Your real, unrealised gains are correct, your realised gains are correct, your franking credits are correct, your performance is correct, your valuations are correct 100%. And even when it's not true, and I'll give you a really good example of what we can do with this reconstruction engine, we can go back in time. So Westfield, as you may have followed, have done some pretty complicated corporate actions. I want to go back to the one that was before the most recent one, the one that was about three or four years ago, where Westfield decided to separate into two companies. One company that only covered Australia and New Zealand and one company for all of their shopping centres overseas. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was a very complicated corporate action. The X date was the 26th of June. The ATO issued two class rulings after that, the second one being in October, saying that they disagreed with what Westfield designated was the corporate action. So for us, that's, that for everybody else, that's a problem, right? Because you, if you're trading in the stock, you don't actually know what your cost base is. You don't really know anything. In our engine, we went back in time from here we were in mid-October. We went back to June 26 in our time machine. We put in the correct interpretation of the corporate action as determined by the ATO class ruling. We then fast-forward the tape. We come back to mid-October, and it was as if the original version never happened. It's like the Terminator movie. Arnie goes back in time, in this time of, you know, he's, he's in the future, and there's mm. this human resistance going. That's he right. goes back in time. He, he shoots Sarah Connor. To get Sarah Connor, yes. Yeah. He goes back in time. He then rolls, his, he rolls fast forward. That's right. And suddenly there's no humans left. The That's right. machines have won. That's what our technology does. Nobody else can do that. We've got all the corporate actions, and nobody else can reconstruct. That's why we are unique. How do you recruit the talent to run this? It's a good question. It... Some of what we've built is so advanced that we only ever have at any given time a handful of people who really, really know it at the lowest level. So retaining key people is very important to us. Um, but hiring people that are exceptional is also very important. You know, we believe that our architecture 
and our infrastructure is so powerful now that we can develop things more effectively and more productively. If you think about productivity, the way economists talk about it, it's all based on infrastructure, right? Mm. That's why people get paid more in this country than they do in India because their infrastructure is better. People are more productive. Our technology is the same. Our developers are accorded a higher productivity because our core underlying technology is so powerful. And that's why Prime is unique. And that's why of all of the players who play in this industry here, in the platform space, if you can use the investment platform space, we're the only ones that operate not only here but also internationally, operating in the UK and servicing global markets. We're the only Australian platform that does that. You spend six months every year overseas, don't you? Yeah, almost. And it's an interesting story. I, I, when I was, in my early days when I went to Boston Consulting Group, I did a case for the committee for Melbourne and it was a pro bono case and, and they were interested to know why Melbourne's leadership in biotech science hadn't um, translated into six, success on an economic basis in terms of great companies. So I got to meet all of the CEOs in the biotech industry. I got to meet all of the senior researchers and the, and the financiers, the venture capitalists and so on. And, and I, I really got this really interesting thought about why is it that it's hard to do it for Melbourne. And I remember one of the CEOs saying to me, you know, he said, Michael, Melbourne is the last refuelling stop on the way to the Antarctic. <laughs> and it really talks to this tyranny of distance, which is both time and, you know, time and, and distance. So when I joined Vision Biosystems, I, l- I learned very quickly that you can't be an Australian technology company, get a little bit of success locally, hire some people overseas, visit them you know, for a week every quarter and think it's going to work. It just doesn't work. And so in my vision biosystems days, I spent half my team overseas because you have to be there. In a small company, developing a technology, transplanting that technology, modifying it to work in those markets and understanding the challenges that your overseas teams have. The CEO has to be there in the early days. So I did that at Vision Biosystems and I'm doing the same thing at Premium. You can't just build a company and just stay here. And if you, look at, if you look at a lot of the tech startups, whether it's in biotech or finance or anything else, that they've, they've made a start here and then they've decided they're going to go to Europe or the US mm. or something, somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere where all the money is. Um, they go and hire great people with a great resume, you know, blue chip history in the US or whatever, and they throw, you know, and then they say, send me the money. And guess what? The money doesn't come. It happens time and time again. So I haven't made that mistake. Now, at some point when Premium becomes really big and well-established and, and with a lot of depth and experience in management all over the world, the CEO won't need to spend half his time overseas, whether that's me or somebody else. But for now, it's still, it's still, it's still the case. And you're in... Uh London. Yeah, we have, our, our biggest office outside of Melbourne is London, but we have offices in Jersey, uh, Yerevan, Dubai, Hong Kong, Shenzhen. So we have about seven or eight offices around the world. But Melbourne and London really are the spokes. Um, they, the, well, the hubs, of, of, you know, they really are the two places where we have two versions of the software. But Melbourne is very much our head office, and a lot of the innovation comes from Melbourne, which we then transplant to, to London. Now, a very, very interesting question, I think, is what's going to happen to the advice industry in the wake of the Hain Royal Commission? And how will this affect Premium? Great question. I've been fortunate enough to see how regulation impacted the platform industry and the advice industry in the UK and how it's changed here. So back in 2012, when we both had the same... When we had our FOFA, they had their RDRs about the same time, 2012, 2013. What happened in the UK is that the vertically integrated banks 
walked away from, from financial advice. They just all walked away. I, I can remember we'd signed up um, the Bank of Scotland as a, as a financial advice firm on our platform. And then the new regulations came in and they walked away. When I say they walked away, they didn't even try and sell the bit. They literally just walked away. They fired all their staff, fired all their advisors, and they walked away. So what happened in the UK is it wasn't a gradual, you know, de-verticalising, if I could use that expression. They just walked away. In Australia, the opposite happened. The guys, you know, they doubled down, they got really strong. What's happening now is that the Australian vertical integrators, the banks, are walking away from advice. In the UK, vertical integration is coming back. So I've seen it go swing, swing both ways in both countries. It's hard to predict. If I think about what platforms, what it will mean for platforms, I think platforms that are vertically integrated have their own financial advice. I think that's going to be a problem. There's an expression called SOPA. Separation of product and advice. Hain didn't bring that in. The UK hasn't brought it in. But clearly it's on the nose. And I think that, fortunately for Prime, we've never bought a financial advice business. You know, we're absolutely just on the product side. Some of our peers are not in that position. I think that's going to be challenging for them. I, I, I think that the other thing that's going to happen, I think, and we're seeing already, is that we as platforms are going to be corralled into the process of keeping financial advisors honest in terms of how we process fees on their behalf. But here is where I think it might ultimately become. We might actually have formal separation of product and advice, not in the next two or three years, but eventually that could happen. And if you think about any other profession, whether it's journalism or dentistry or medicine or architecture or accounting, you know, when you meet your professional um, consultant, whoever they might be, and they look at you in the eye, you have no doubt they have your interests at heart. It's a bit harder when you know the financial advisor has some sort of relationship with the product provider. It'd be a bit like a drug company buying a medical practice. Mm. You wouldn't, we wouldn't accept that. That's why I think that's what might happen. I think the other thing that might happen as well is that platforms have been very popular with advisors, <clears throat> partly because we process advice fees for them. In other words, we, we as platforms take the cash out of the client's investment account and we pay the advisors. Now, in most other professional relationships, that professional person, being an accountant or a doctor or an architect or whatever it is, they send you a bill directly. I wouldn't be surprised if one day we get to the point where advisors have to directly bill their investors and platforms are just a place where you invest the money and they're not involved in the process of taking advice fees. If I had to sort of project out where it might end up, which would change your business completely? No, it would make our business simpler because now we're not having to worry about whether the, the advisors are correctly charging the clients that we're taking the cash out on their behalf for. So, so it's less stress for you. Less stressful for us, yes. Right. Okay. But I think that's some time away. In the near term, we'll definitely have to build more technology which helps the regular regulator um, have more confidence that the advisor is doing what they're supposed to be doing. So more te another technological solution? It's more, it's more just some, some fine-tuning to our technology so that we've got some checks in place to keep people honest, basically, uh, and, and to help the regulator effectively. Well, Michael, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And now let's talk to economist Jonathan Boimel. Jonathan Boimel, the RBA has cut interest rates three times already and property prices has boomed. Now, the question is, are we headed for another debt-laden property boom? Well, it does feel a, bit, a little bit of deja vu. Um, the market has recorded a, 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 a remarkable increase um, in property prices, 
led by the capital cities that in fact have the steepest downturns. National median prices bounced back about 3% um, in the past three months ending September. Um, prices are, of course, still below their peak from mid-2017. They're about 10% below um, that peak. The issue, of course, is that we seem to be in a, in a situation that's not that dissimilar um, to 2012, and that is demand for properties are heading one way. Um, the construction cycle, however, is heading the other way. So the growth in demand without a meaningful supply response will lead to an increase in, in property prices. You know, as you suggested, three uh, interest rate cuts by the, uh, by the RBA, we had the surprise federal election result. So we've got a lot of pent-up, pent-up demand. Um, there have been buyers who are sitting on the fence. Lending conditions have, have relaxed slightly. And so you've had those undecided buyers jumping, jumping back in. Whether or not we're going to see what we saw between 2012 and 2017, where we saw prices increasing by, you know, 77%, is another, is another matter. But construction um, is experiencing a downturn when it comes to residential property. It's declined by almost 10% um, over the past year, and it's been a broad-based decline in terms of detached housing, in terms of higher density housing and the forecasts, well, the RBA forecasts, that um, there will be a, a significant decline by about seven percent um, in dwelling investment over the over the next year. And of course, the risk is that that decline may in fact be may in fact be larger. But the issue is that uh, people going into so much debt would leave them with less money to spend on other goods, which drive GDP. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and there is that concern when you look at uh, the un unemployment data. We're seeing that there is jobs growth, but jobs growth is slowing. And there may be a rule, for, maybe a role rather, for some fiscal stimulus. Okay, so while we're seeing, you know, marginal improvements in the unemployment rate, we're seeing employment surveys and job vacancy data, um, which suggests that employment growth is, is going to slow in the months ahead. So we've still got a long way to actually get to the RBA's full employment aim of 4.5%. Of um, we're not going to get there by using monetary policy in the way, in the way that we have, it's put, you know, pushing on a string. Um, so I think there will be a role um, for the federal government to, to step in, uh, perhaps with some large infrastructure projects to generate higher levels of, of income and employment. It doesn't seem that we're going to be getting that result anytime soon. Um, and of course, you know, to, to, to offset your concern, when we see declines in interest rates, um, it means it's easier for people to, to service their, their, existing, their existing mortgages. That may not lead to the boost in employment and income that we've seen before, but in part, it would help to offset the concerns that you've expressed about increasing property prices, people taking on more debt, and that need to service debt crowding out other forms of spending. Well, the government has just come out with a package for first home buyers, but that's capped at, what, $700,000 in Sydney, when a property in Sydney is worth about $1.2 million. 
Yeah. So, you, so they kept it half of what the property was actually worth. That's right. That's right. So, you know, here he we're looking at, at um, the government stepping in in, in terms of providing that, that mortgage insurance, um, whether it's going to make a difference in terms of the ability of first home buyers to enter the, the Sydney market is, is highly questionable. Again, when we've got demand heading one way and we've got the construction cycle heading the, heading the other way. Oh, the other issue too is, of course, the uh, wages growth is, is flat tracking at about 2%. And uh, for it for there to be any increase, uh, the the unemployment figure would need to have a four in front of it, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is it is concerning that the government isn't being more proactive in terms of fiscal fiscal stimulus. It's going to have to come sooner rather than later. Um, so the Morrison government, I think, is going to have to step up and and see what it can do in terms of boosting incomes, um, because we're getting very close to a, to a situation where declines in, in official interest rates um, either won't do the job that um, the RBA would like them to do or we're going to be hitting that, hitting that lower bound. And I think the RBA is going to have to step in also in terms of non-traditional monetary policy, quantitative easing, purchasing bonds, purchasing other assets to get that injection in the, in the money supply, which again is another way of, of boosting income and employment. Um, but yeah, at the moment, there's little hope uh, on the horizon for the growth in in wages and the growth in in income that we would we would like to see. Underemployment, of course, is still a significant significant issue um, at around at around eight percent. Again, so the issue of underemployment also um, puts a cap on expected wages growth. But the the interesting part is, I mean, I was looking at RBA figures the other day, and it showed that our population has increased by something like 50% from 1990, from when it was about 17 million, to about 25 million now. Hmm. And yet property property, uh, building applications have not proceeded at the same rate. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, you know, a a significant factor on on the demand side um, in terms of the demand for property. It takes a long time to get new supply of housing up and running, particularly the kind of high-density housing that we need in Sydney and we need in Melbourne. So there are always these long lead times. And as a result, you get these price movements rather than quantity movements. So again, you know, within, within two years, if not within, let's say, the next year, you would expect to see that the construction cycle would have would have bottom, bottomed out, um, and we will see growth in in construction again. But again, that will not happen. That will certainly won't happen in the next year, let's say. So it is going to take it is going to take some time before we see a pickup in in housing construction again. So we're talking here years, aren't we? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And the concern, obviously, is you know what what fills the gap in terms of that employment growth, in terms of that wages growth, you know, we've moved away from the resources boom, we've moved away from the, the housing construction boom. Are we going to get the same growth from in incomes from population growth? I'm, I'm not so sure. So the question is, what, what fills the gap? What fills the gap? And again, coming back to the need potentially for the Morrison government to, to step in 
and relieve some of these pressures on the economy through infrastructure spending. And the RBA could, with its quantitative easing, perhaps direct it more towards businesses, couldn't they, rather than households? Look, potentially, and I think you know the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority could respond to monetary easing by again clamping down on on lending, reimposing some of the restrictions that they had initially imposed in order to constrain the growth in in house prices. So there's clearly stuff that that can be done both to boost the economy um, at the same time as restricting the extent to which that would feed through into the housing market. There's limited evidence coming out of, of the US and Europe where quantitative easing has been used in terms of the real impact that uh, quantitative easing has on the on the money market on the housing market rather. I mean intuitively you think quantitative easing reduces yields on on certain assets and as a result people step into the housing market in the hope of, of higher yields. Theoretically, you know, that's something that we would expect, but empirically we haven't seen quantitative easing driving significant um, price growth. So you would expect the RBA would take all of these lessons on board when implementing any quantitative easing here? Absolutely, and I think that's why um, they may be a little more relaxed um, about quantitative easing compared to let's say, more traditional reduction in official interest rates. While reductions in official interest rates may have a... Because reductions in official interest rates would have a larger impact on the housing market than would uh, quantitative easing. Well, Jonathan Boymel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, US Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross expressed optimism the US would reach a phase one trade deal with China this month and said licenses would be coming very shortly for American companies to sell components to Huawei Technologies. But China is setting its price for signing an interim trade deal with the United States. Drop the tariffs. The question is whether President Donald Trump will pay it. Trump on Sunday told reporters at the White House that a trade agreement, if one is completed, will be signed somewhere in the US. The US is reportedly considering removing some tariffs on Chinese goods in order to help seal a partial trade deal this month. According to a report in the Financial Times, officials are debating whether to drop levies on US $112 billion worth of Chinese imports, including clothing, appliances and flat screen monitors. The tariffs were introduced at a rate of 15% on September the 1st. And leaders of 15 Asian Pacific nations have agreed to terms on the world's largest trade deal, pressing ahead with a pact even though India wavered in joining. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership covers about 29% of global economic production. The pact formalises trade rules across the 15 countries and gives Australia better access to those markets. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership was to be a deal with the 10 Southeast Asian members of the ASEAN Alliance and Japan, China, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia and India. India declined to join the pact amid concerns it would undermine the nation's already faltering economy. Australia already has individual trade agreements with ASEAN and a number of other countries in the deal, but this pact formalises trade rules across the 15 countries and gives better access to those markets beyond what the original deals allow. Australia's services industries will be one of the main beneficiaries of the deal, with professional bodies able to open talks on mutual recognition of qualifications, licences and registration, 
with benefits for players in legal, architectural, engineering, accounting and auditing services, education, healthcare, real estate, advertising, research and development, recruitment and management consulting. And as expected, the Reserve Bank of Australia board kept the cash rate on hold at 0.75%. Financial markets had priced in a 5% chance for 0.25 percentage point rate cut. They did not have the full rate cut priced in for the next six months, despite the big four banks expecting one by February or earlier. And the RBA decision comes in the face of the ANZ Australian job ads falling 1% in October, following a gain of 0.3% in September. Job ads are now 11.4% lower than a year ago. In trend terms, job ads were down 0.3% for the month and 10.9% for the year. And it coincides with retail sales in the month of September rising 0.2% in seasonal adjusted terms, less than half the rate economists had expected, falling to their lowest level in 28 years since the early 1990s when Australia had its last recession. Tax cuts, three interest rate cuts and employment growth of 2.5% were still not enough to lift consumer spending as strongly as the government would have hoped. Spending on discretionary items such as household goods remains quite weak, reflecting tight budgets and cautious households. Households are dialling back on what they don't necessarily need, at least not now, so that they can maintain their spending on necessities such as food and clothing. Not since our last recession have we had a retail sector that has struggled so much to get product out the door. And slumping numbers of new apartments in marketing means a country faces a shortage of apartments in about 18 months' time, when the current new supply and outstanding stock has been absorbed and there's yet no pipeline churning out new dwellings, JLL says. The total number of new apartments currently being marketed has dropped 72% from the national peak of 34,488 in the third quarter of 2017 to just 9,565, the Kirsch Mercial Real Estate Agency's third quarter 2019 apartment market reports shows. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has eased pressure on the Reserve Bank to make further interest rate cuts by allowing it more time to get inflation back within its 2-3% target, declaring there'll be no change to the official agreement on monetary policy in light of global uncertainties. Mr Frydenberg said that while underlying inflation had been below the target for 15 quarters, he still expected it would return to its target over the medium term. He also ruled out forcing the RBA governor to explain any undershooting or overshooting of the inflation target in a letter to the Treasurer, as is required of the Governor of the Bank of England. And Westpac has reported a 15% fall in its cash profit to $6.849 billion, cut its second-half dividend to $0.80, and will raise $2.5 billion in capital. Westpac Chief Executive Brian Hartzer said the $2.5 billion capital raising would provide the bank with a buffer over and above the prudential regulator's requirements, which start on January 1st. An Australian mining magnate, Gina Reinhardt's fortune swelled $2.1 billion after her closely held company reported improved financial results on the back of higher iron ore sales. Hancock Prospecting's revenue rose 39% for the year to June 30. Earnings also improved at the Perth-based group with a 90% increase in net profit to $2.6 billion. But this has seen Gina Reinhardt's battle with her children over the management of a multi-billion dollar family trust holding up dividend payments that will be worth $2 billion by the end of this year, according to Ms Reinhardt's flagship company, Hancock Prospecting. Following the release of the mining group's financial accounts for the year ending June 30, 2019, the company said $1.85 billion of dividends had yet to be paid to Ms Reinhardt's children as of September 30. 
This is due to a family dispute over the Hope Margaret Hancock Trust. The company said this provision for dividends would be closer to $2 billion by the end of the year, as earnings ramp up at the company's mines, which includes the Hope Downs project. The results lifted Reinhardt's wealth to $17.9 billion on the Bloomberg Index, in Billionaires Index, a $3.7 billion increase since the beginning of the year. Gina Reinhardt is the second richest woman in the Asia-Pacific region after Chinese real estate titan Yang Huan, who's worth $24.1 billion. Reinhardt tops Bloomberg's list of the richest Australians. And the Morrison government and big banks will jointly invest equity into fast-growing smaller firms after Treasurer Josh Frydenberg convinced bank bosses to improve their community reputations by joining a $500 million public-private business growth fund. The government and big four domestic banks are expected to chip in about $100 million each as seed capital to secure a board seat at the new small and medium enterprise fund, with HSBC injecting a smaller amount. The planned fund will provide long-term equity capital to 30 to 50 firms a year, with annual turnovers between $2 million and $50 million, which are typically beyond the startup stage and must have a successful business record of at least three years. And the Australian Competition Consumer Commission is in advanced stages of preparing evidence to launch legal action related to the demise of former mobile advertising technology high flyer Unlocked, which crashed into administration shortly before an initial public offering in 2018. The move would thrust the ACCC into the huge global battle between Google and regulators, particularly in the United States, where 50 states and territories have begun investigating potential monopolistic behaviour. Since 2010, Google has also faced a number of European antitrust actions which have seen it fined more than 8 billion euro, that's 12.9 billion Aussie. Unlocked blamed its inability to list and ultimately continue operations on Google's autocratic decision to ban unlocked apps from Google platforms. The company's co-founder and former chief executive Matt Berriman has claimed this was a bid to crush its potential for competing for mobile advertising revenue. The ACCC will kick off its Unlocked-related legal case in early 2020 and has begun getting affidavits from witnesses. It has spoken to over 30 people with knowledge of the case and reviewed more than 10,000 documents. The case will be based around whether Google breached Section 46 of competition law, whereby a firm with a substantial degree of market power is prohibited from engaging in conduct that has a purpose, effect, or likely effect of substantially reducing competition in a market. And QSuper and SunSuper have confirmed they are in discussions about a merger to create what would be Australia's largest superannuation fund at about $182 billion. In a joint statement, QSuper Chairman Carl Morris and SunSuper Chairman Andrew Fraser said merger talks were in the early stages. And Woolworths faces a possible protest vote against its remuneration report at the annual meeting next month as the fallout spreads from its $300 million wages underpayment scandal. Representatives from the Australian Shareholders Association plan to grill Woolworths Chairman Gordon Cairns this week about when the part company first became aware of the scale of the underpayments. The ASA also wants to know when millions of dollars in bonuses were issued to senior executives, including Chief Executive Brand Banducci and Managing Director of Supermarkets Claire Peters. And the economy could see more businesses becoming insolvent with the value of insurance claims submitted by Australian businesses to cover bad debts from their supplies soaring to an all-time record level, according to the latest NCI Trade Credit Risk Index. As a nation's leading forecaster of future company insolvencies, the NCI Trade Credit Risk Index reports there were 460 trade credit insurance claims lodged by businesses during the third quarter of 2019, with a total value of $49.9 million. It's the highest claims amount since NCI's Trade Credit Risk Index commenced in 2012, 
easily surpassing the previous high of $44.5 million recorded in the third quarter of 2014. Remarkably, the total claims received value is 46% higher than the previous quarter, and well over double the total claims amount from the corresponding period last year. And the Matildas have reportedly secured a groundbreaking deal to earn the same pay as the Socceroos. Football Federation Australia and the Professional Football Association Union will announce the world-first deal which would see Australia's women's senior international team earn as much as their male counterparts. The Matildas and the Socceroos will reportedly share 40% of commercial revenue and prize money evenly in a landmark agreement with a player's total share of revenue in the game also set to rise from 30% to 40%. Historically, the Socceroos have been allocated a greater share of commercial revenues and been paid more to play. According to the report, both the men and women's players were committed to changing the pay structure, with officials from the FFA and the Players' Union negotiating for months to alter the pay agreement. And the move by Bega to temporarily rebrand Vegemite after local tennis champ Ashley Barty is a case of impeccable timing. Marketing experts say the inventable Aussie spread should enjoy a significant sales jump in the wake of the move, which coincides with Barty winning the biggest cash prize in tennis history in China over the weekend. It's only the second time in the product's history it has been rebranded. Bega will manufacture more than 1 million Bartimite jars for sale. And Australia's biggest brickmaker, Brickworks, has made its third United States acquisition in a year, with a US $48 million, or 70 million Aussie, purchase of Redland Brick, based in Maryland. The acquisition brings four brickmaking sites into the fold. They have a combined output of 80 million bricks per annum, with, from two plants in Maryland, and one each in Virginia and Pennsylvania. Brickworks, the dominant player in Australia's brickmaking has pursued an offshore expansion to give itself a new growth avenue and because of frustration about the high energy prices in Australia. And building products group Boral has warned that profits from both its North American and Australian operations in the September quarter have fallen below the same period last year because of softer housing markets. Boral Chief Executive Mike Kane said a cost-cutting program had been stepped up to offset the downturn, and the company still expects to meet its full-year profit forecast for 2019-20, which had already been lowered in August. But he expects Boral's earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation for the first half of 2019-20 to be about 5% lower than the previous year. Mr Kane said on Wednesday that Boral's concrete volumes in Australia were down 8% in the three months of the end of September, compared with a year ago, because of the weaker housing market and delays in infrastructure projects. Asphalt volumes were broadly flat. And that's it for this week. And next week I talk to Andrew McClellan, the CEO of Blue Chip, which has a technology that wirelessly tracks the identification and temperature of valuable samples, such as tissue, blood, serum and plasma, which are stored in harsh and aggressive environments like liquid nitrogen. The Blue Chip technology centres on a miniature chip with 52 mechanical beams of different lengths, all responding at different frequencies. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the week ahead in the markets. And of course, I'll be bringing all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 